0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today because we are talking about not just a cool book, but in fact, a series of very cool books um, with, in fact, the editor of the series, Josh Glenn. Um, We're talking about Radium Age, which in partnership with MIT Press is a series that Josh Glenn is uh, masterminding, really, to reissue notable early science fiction stories from the beginning of the 20th century, sort of 1900 to 1930-ish, which I think a lot of people, myself certainly included, were a lot less aware of in terms of the science fiction canon. And yet a bunch of key ideas and tropes that we're more familiar with, this is actually where a lot of them come from. So Josh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to tell us about this really cool series.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Miranda.
0: Before we dive into all things radium age, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and perhaps helping us explain kind of how you came to work on this?
1: Sure. I'm founding editor of the MIT Press's series of reissued proto-science fiction stories and novels that were originally published between 1900 and 1935. I call them proto science fiction because that term science fiction didn't actually uh, wasn't actually coined until the mid 1920s by Hugo Gernsback. So, although obviously we recognize a lot of you know even H. G. Wells and Jules Verne as uh, science fiction these days, um, there's there's some uh, folks in the world of science fiction history who don't like to call that early stuff science fiction because the name didn't exist yet, and those writers didn't think of themselves as science fiction writers. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And um, as far as how I came to create the series, uh, you know, I'm a science fiction aficionado. I've uh, been reading it my entire life. And I also enjoy reading genre literature, specifically from the early 20th century. I really like 1910s, 20s and 30s, uh, you know, UK and US um, genre writers like Um, Dorothy L. Sayers or Robert E. Howard. I like books like The Scarlet Pimpernel and The 39 Steps and Writers of the Purple Sage, all kinds of different genres. And so um, some years ago, I would say about 2008 or so, when I was systematically researching and reading my way through um, fiction from that era to make sure that I hadn't missed anything, I was excited to kind of make sure I read all the good stuff. I was astonished to discover, as you mentioned, all this overlooked science fiction from the, from the early three and a, first three and a half decades of the 20th century, that with the exception of Brave New World, let's say, or Edgar Rice Burroughs' Barsoom series, i never heard of, and I don't think most other people had either. And a lot of science fiction histories really give short shrift to that period and kind of skip right from H.G. Wells's and, you know, Verne's great years in the late 19th century, all the way up to the so-called Golden Age in the, in the mid-1930s. So I just started doing research and, um, you know, sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, meaning other people have done research into this era already and, um, rediscovering this literature for myself. And I started writing about it for a science fiction blog called io9.com. This was again, back in 2009. And then I started even republishing some of these books at my own expense. I started an imprint to to bring these books back, back into print. And finally to answer the question of why it's called the radium age, um, I didn't want to call it. I was originally calling it the pre-golden age because everyone knows what golden age science fiction is—the era of Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein, and you know, the great era of the pulp science fiction magazine, certainly here in the U.S. And so I was originally calling it pre-golden age just because that's what people know. But over time, I, I became dissatisfied with that, partly because I no longer believe that the golden age was so great. I actually think the radio age is a lot more interesting and diverse in some ways than the golden age. So as I was reading and thinking about this history of this period, I realized that Marie Curie, the scientist Marie Curie's career, was almost exactly contemporaneous with this era of science fiction. She, just, she shared a Nobel Prize for her discovery of radium in 1903, and she died of radiation-induced leukemia in 1934. So the title, Radium Age, suggested itself. Long-winded answer.
0: No, a great answer. Um, that covers a whole bunch of things that give us some great context um, for discussing the series further. Along sort of similar lines, we've both now mentioned kind of the idea, as you said, proto science fiction, that there's a lot here that we might recognize later on. Um, to give our listeners some idea of kind of what sorts of things we're talking about, can you take us through some of the tropes and innovations that are in these stories that we might see later on?
1: Yes. So I think that actually is what excited me when I first started reading these books, not just that they were pardon me, written um, so well, you know, because I like the writing style of that era, but also because these tropes and themes were brand new at the time. It's it's so interesting to see them first appear and first be uh, imported into science fiction from other genres and so forth. So, for example... The idea of the Superman or the Superwoman, an evolved human, whether they're super smart or they have super physical abilities or both, uh, who may or may not have our best interests at heart. So not the kindly comic book superheroes of the you know 1940s and 50s, but the kind of more frightening superheroes like Mandius and Alan Moore's Watchmen, let's say. Uh, we began to see this kind of uh, figure emerging in radio Age science fiction at the time in, in the writings of, for example, Olaf Stapleton who coined the term homo superior to describe um, these sort of mutant um, superior beings, the next stage of humanity. Uh, That expression would then be popularized by Stan Lee in his X-Men comics in the 60s. But we first find it here, and as early as sort of the very early um, uh, part of the 20th century, uh, Inspired partly by Nietzsche, inspired partly by ideas that were current then in evolution and um, philosophy, Bergson and so forth. So that's one of them, Superman. Uh, the robot, also the cyborg. Um, we first see in this era, there were sort of metal men in, um, in fables and um, mythology and, and fantasy before then. But the robot as we know them really comes from... The Czechoslovakian writer Karel Čapek, who who, uh, who, in his play R.U.R. gave us the term robot, which comes from the Czech word for indentured laborer. There's also the robot in um, uh, Metropolis, the uh, movie by Fritz Lang, but also the novel by his wife, Thea von Harbour, which was written at the same time as the movie. Um, and I also like to mention, um, there's, there's many others I can mention, artificial intelligence and so forth, but I like to also mention telepathy. Because it's so funny to me now, looking back, to think that we take telepathy for granted as something that is a science fictional concept. We we see telepaths in Star Trek and so forth, and we just think, yes, in the future, that could be telepaths. Maybe they're from other planets, or maybe we develop that ability here among ourselves. But of course, that isn't really scientific at all. It's it's really kind of an occult or paranormal idea that was um, borrowed from, uh, you know, spiritualism and occult and paranormal fiction by writers uh, like Muriel Jaeger, H. Rider Haggard in England, or Abraham Merritt in the U.S., um, and they brought it into, the, into this genre. And by, by doing so and by having characters sort of discuss telepathy in a sort of scientific or pseudoscientific way and take it quite seriously and be logical about it, they really helped reinvent it and make it this popular trope that has survived ever since.
0: That is a great introduction to some of them. um, And I think very much expresses kind of by example exactly why you initially and me much more recently um, were so excited by these stories. Um, Now, obviously, there's kind of an excavation element to the work you've done, right? Extracting them, finding them, and then putting them together in this new way. How did you decide which... Books, sort of full-length books, as well as short stories in some anthologies. How did you decide which to include in the series?
1: Uh, yes, good question. It's um, at first, in the, when I first was reissuing them ten years ago, I really was focused on just surprising people. That, uh, but for the uh, around the fact that, for example, writers who they know really well for other kinds of writing, like Jack London, like Arthur Conan Doyle. Like E Nesbit, who wrote the uh, you know the contemporary fantasy novels like uh, *The Phoenix and the Carpet*, were science fiction writers. Uh, so that was kind of my um, early uh, impulse was just to kind of get people accepting and being excited and surprised by this era by letting them know that you know E.M. Forster wrote science fiction. Uh, since then, and now that I'm working with MIT Press, my focus is really more on. A couple of things. One, I want to cast a wide net and introduce as many of those themes and tropes that we just talked about as possible. So I want to make sure that, you know, in the first couple of years, we're going to have some telepathy and we're going to have some um, you know, robots and we're going to have inscrutable aliens and so forth. I also want to make sure that women, people of color and proto-science fiction writers from outside of the U.S. and outside of Western Europe are represented. So we, we know there's a strong tradition in France and England and the U.S., science fiction that, from this era but but there was also science fiction happening in india in japan uh in uh, all, all corners of the world south america and um i want to try to you know bring that in as well so for example in the two story collections i edited one was called voices from the radium age that came out last year and then this year more voices from the radium age uh, you'll find writings by uh, Rokea Sakhawat Hussain who is a bengali muslim Uh, author um, and uh, and a feminist um, uh, activist uh, from very early 20th century, W.E. Dubois, the African-American sociologist, um, kind of an extraordinary writer. It turns out I didn't realize this, but um, also wrote some very interesting science fiction. Uh, And I also want to make sure to um, bring our attention back to some writers who were very, very influential and popular at the time, like Abraham Merritt or William Hope Hodgson, or George Allen England. They were just bestsellers, almost as, as big as like Edgar Rice Burroughs. Um, and now basically forgotten folks. So a kind of combination of bringing all these things together. Um, we reissued a novel called Of One Blood uh, um, last year by Pauline Hopkins, who was one of the very few um, science fiction writers who were African-American women that I know of from this era. And of one blood is kind of an extraordinary Wakanda-like story about a hidden, never colonized nation in Africa. Um, so th- th- these kind of discoveries are really exciting. Um, also, I mentioned um, I mentioned E.M. Forster, who wrote a novel, wrote a novella that we reissued called The Machine Stops, which is really predicts um, our addiction to social media, among other things. So some really fun. Um, you know, diverse themes and um, authors and uh, um, lo- locations, you know, um, sources of the material. Well, I should also mention that uh, I'm talking really fast. So I'm excited about all this stuff, but I should mention that we are going to publish in March a collection of Bengali science fiction translated into English for the first time by Bodhisattva Chattopadhyay, who's a, a Bengali-speaking science fiction um, scholar. And we're also going to publish a collection of stories by Frances Stevens, who whose real name was Gertrude Barrows-Bennett. She was the first American woman to publish widely in pulp science fiction magazines. So I mentioned earlier that I feel that the radio age is actually more diverse, in, strangely, than later science fiction in the Golden Age. You don't usually think of history as working that way. Usually things are less diverse and they become more diverse as, as society becomes more progressive. But actually, the Golden Age of science fiction saw a kind of... Um, reversal of progress in in that regard, which we can talk about later in the interview, but um, that's why it's exciting to kind of rediscover some of these, so many um, women, people of color, people from around the world writing science fiction um, before the golden age that we hadn't heard of before.
0: Thank you for explaining that. Um, It's obviously very evident from kind of looking at the titles in the series, sort of that range there and fascinating to hear a bit about how that was created. I'd love to ask about kind of another component to the project, which is that each book has a foreword written by someone now, right? Um, Of all sorts of different kind of expertise and background, how did you decide which person should write the foreword for which book?
1: Miranda, I'm really grateful that you asked that question. And I can tell that you, like me, are somebody who is interested, who likes to read scholarly literature. I like to read books by scholars. And, um, although I'm not really a scholar myself, and I find that I'm, I'm very grateful to the journalists who have um, reviewed and mentioned the MIT Radium Age series. We've gotten a lot of great press here in the U.S. and, and in the U.K., but almost no one ever mentions these introductions, uh, because I don't think most people are that interested in scholarly introductions. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you are. So, yes, we have a... A panel that we pulled together of um, volunteers, science, volunteers, friends of the project. They are science fiction authors and they're scholars, so they include people like uh, Annalie Newitz, who's both a scholar and an author of science fiction, and indeed uh, Banerjee, Cheryl Vint, our, our scholars, Ken Liu, the uh, writer and translator of science fiction, uh, among others who um, are very, very, very helpful about offering suggestions about who might be the right person to approach for a given title. So I will sort of say, hey, guys, um, I've gotten approval to do this one particular title. Here's what it's about. Here's what the themes are. Who's really good on this topic, you know, who, who writes about it in their own science fiction or who's written some scholarship around this area? And almost inevitably, they will, you know, not only suggest someone great, but they will introduce me to that person. I will also, on occasion, do JSTOR research. I will look through scholarly journals. For example, when I was reissuing um, two novels by Arthur Conan Doyle, I wanted to find someone who had written about his science fiction, his Professor Challenger stories, uh, and I found that by by looking at scholarly journals. And then also, just thanks to my previous life in journalism and publishing, um, I happen to know a lot of interesting thinkers from Astor Taylor to uh, Matthew Battles or Madeline Ashby, um, so I've, some of the writers are just people that I know who I just happen to know are very interesting thinkers and journalists and writers. Can I just say one? Can I say one more thing, which is that the tricky thing, what I'm always trying to do throughout my really my entire career as an editor, is I want my scholarly writers to be to write in a more journalistic way, and I want my more journalistic writers to write in a more scholarly way. So I'm constantly trying to to uh, pull those two threads together. Well,
0: that's actually what I wanted to ask you about, Um, kind of the staying in the forward space for a moment, because um, when you describe them just now as sort of scholarly forwards, in, in some ways, I think you might be doing a disservice to it because scholarly forwards, sort of at least the cliche is that they're sort of a bunch of pages that don't necessarily actually say very much and they're maybe not the most compellingly written. That's not what these are. So can you tell us a bit more about kind of what sorts of responses you've gotten from the modern contributors in these forwards?
1: Uh, yes. So, yeah, so some of the, um, the folks, I don't, I'm not going to name names and make, make colony went out, but if some of the folks who are sort of historians, let's say, so sort of historians of the science fiction genre or of, or of um, uh, women's roles in World War I or whatever it is that they're, whatever it is that they're an expert in and the, the reason that I contacted them. You know the default mode, and I I went to graduate school. The default mode is to you know use footnotes and to write very carefully, and sometimes use too much jargon, unfortunately. So that's the sort of thing I'm always trying to weed out. I will not. I will say that some of them don't write that way, and they write you know they're very good at writing in in a kind of more straightforward way. What I don't ever want to do is ask people to talk down or dumb things down. I want it to be quite erudite, but I also want it to be breezy, and that is a hard thing to pull off. Sort of being, I I call it high lowbrow. Uh, same my one of my websites, and um it's very hard to kind of surf both of those registers at the same time um, and I'm, it's always wonderful when I can find a writer who just automatically does it. I don't have to edit them at all, but typically, I do have to you know ask the more scholarly writers to kind of you know if they if they want to have a few footnotes fine, but can we make them end notes, and can you um, you know really just have them be pointing to references as opposed to making good jokes or putting an interesting point in there. If you have a good point or a good joke, put it in the body of the text. Uh, I want. I don't really want any jargon unless we really need it, and in which case, let's you know, let's define it. All these kinds of um, editorial techniques.
0: Now, thank you for going into a bit more detail on that. Um- Turning to a different aspect of the series, we've obviously mentioned the fact that this is through MIT Press, um, but we, I don't want to gloss over that because that's obviously a big part of it. How did the series end up with MIT Press?
1: So yes, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology has a wonderful scholarly press that um, until fairly recently really didn't publish fiction. They published you know, science and technology uh, mostly, and, and the history of science and technology and that sort of thing. Um, I'm sure I'm missing a lot of things that they write about, but that's that's what they're known for. So um, they got interested in science fiction a few years ago and started uh, reissuing Stanislaw Lem. Uh, they have a really terrific reissue series of his work, and um, I think they were they came across my um, efforts from ten years ago to reissue some of the stuff on my own on my own dime, and they approached me. And I had literally at that point moved on to other projects and put all of my um, Books, my Radium Age books into boxes and put them up in the attic. So I was really kind of done with the, with the project. I was still reading Radium Age, but I wasn't trying to popularize it any longer. But this was during the pandemic and my my day job had really slowed down for several months. And so they came a long way at the right time to to uh, to tempt me back in to, um, to doing this project. So yes, they were interested in getting more science fiction titles in. Um, they liked what I had done 10 years ago. So it was kind of a, a nice um, match made in heaven.
0: Lovely, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I'd love to dive back into some of the stories, if you don't mind. Um, we have mentioned kind of ways in which these stories are creating things for the first time that then continue on in other uh, literature, film, etc., sci-fi written afterwards, but. Can you talk us through maybe some of the key themes or aspects of these stories that are very much reflecting the particular times and places that they were written in?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, this is the part I'm nervous about talking with you about because I know that you have a lot of <laughs> historians who listen to you and I'm not a historian, <laughs> but I have tried to you know, do a little catch up and read, read up on the history of this era uh, as I think about my own introductions and, and so forth for these books. Yes, so there's a history book about Europe from 1900 to 1914 called *The Vertigo Years*. Philip Blom, I believe, is the author, and the title of that book captures really well what a kind of topsy-turvy, thrilling yet terrifying moment this this early moment, this early decades of the new millennium were. Um, in science, of course, Marie Curie develops her theory of radioactivity, which leads to this insight that the atom, which was supposedly this individual indivisible building block of everything that exists was in fact, at least partly a state of energy that's constantly in motion. Um, uh, Henry um, Adams, the historian said has a great quote about how i get it wrong, but how the man of science must have been sleepy indeed who didn't jump from his chair, like a startled dog when R- Marie Curie threw the metaphysical bomb called radium on his desk, something like that. So it was like, it really was mind blowing. Um, insight and really um, paradigm-shifting scientific insight. And I find it such a good metaphor for everything that was happening at the time in society and culture. There was the women's suffrage movement and the NAACP being formed and socialist currents within the labor movement and the sort of early stirrings of anti-colonial upheaval around the world. And of course, with, with any kind of progressive movements, there's also backlash. So all of these reactionary tendencies that seem so triumphant at the moment supporting re- racial segregation, immigration restriction, sexism. Um, those of course they existed, but they emerged in the kind of modern powerful political way that they, that we know them now um, also during this period as a response to those progressive developments. And of course, World War One uh, was the kind of science fiction cat- uh, catastrophe novel in real life um, and really, you know, got people thinking in a very different way about um, new technologies let's, to put it mildly. So, uh, you know, some of these books we've reissued, like J.D. Beresford's A World of Women, is a feminist pandemic novel, which, um, in a very kind of um, obtuse, not obtuse, um, uh, eccentric, strange way, makes the case that um, the fact that, you know, middle class, lower middle class women in England weren't really allowed to work and um, learn things and develop skills outside of the home um, uh, was his way of uh, arguing that was bad was to posit a pandemic in which all the men die and then all the women start dying because they have no skills so um, things like that um, HG Wells is the world set free is about predicts atomic weaponry Rose Macaulay, another English writer uh, she's a book called what not that we reissue which is about eugenics in England and the you know, sort of pushing that, um, idea to its absurd conclusion. I mentioned Rokea Sakhawat Hussein, uh, the Bengali uh, author who asked us to imagine a world in which women aren't second-class citizens and aren't confined to PERDA and W.E.B. Bois does the same thing for African-Americans. So, um, people were very much engaged with, you know, the issues of the moment, um, in this writing. So it's, it, it is a window, um, into what was happening in society and culture at the time.
0: Mm. No, thank you for taking us through those examples, um, and and you know taking the leap to link it to what was happening at the time. I think there's some very clear parallels there. I'd love to ask you to kind of talk about something you hinted at earlier, um, that some of the books very much sort of predict things that have now happened or that now are happening around social media or artificial intelligence. Um, can you tell us more about kind of some of the things that these books seem to have gotten right?
1: Well, there, yeah, there are a lot of examples of accurate predictions made um, by proto-science fiction authors. So Hugo Gernsback, who you know, was one of the first, created the first pulp science fiction magazine, the first science fiction only magazine, uh, and the Hugo Award, are named after him. He had a novel called Ralph 124C41+, which is the name of a Superman character, super genius. And this book predicts so many things, fluorescent lights, microfilm, radar, television, a kind of cloth, which to me sounds like a lot like polar fleece. I think maybe solar power might be in this book. He was particularly, that's kind of what science fiction was for him was uh, extrapolating new technologies. And of course there's a lot of hard science fiction to this day that that's kind of what the point of it is. Or you could point to a brave new world where everyone's dosed on mood enhancing drugs. Like, Huxley got that right. I'm personally, I'm not super interested in these sorts of predictions, um, but there were, there are some really, that's not kind of what I'm looking for when I am, uh, choosing these books to, to put in the series, but I will let me mention a couple of predictions from from these books that unfortunately came true. One is, uh, there's a book we released called Norden Holtz Million by J.J. Connington, who was actually a Scottish chemist. Um, and it's about a, um, there's a global food chain catastrophe and a sort of Trump-like industrialist, a lot smarter than Donald Trump, but a, but a billionaire, successful uh, businessman seizes upon this moment to basically set up a fascist state. Um, and we're left to ask ourselves whether the author actually thinks that was a good idea or a bad idea. But from our vantage, it just looks kind of like a bad idea. Um, Cicely Hamilton, another uh, English writer, wrote a novel called Theodore Savage, which is one of the first sort of post-World War I novels to imagine um Western world returning to a state of sort of savagery or mi- Middle Ages, like um, Dark Ages. So she, uh, in this book, she imagines people turning against science because of um, the war. They saw you know technologies, airplanes, and bombs used against them, and then now they're against science, and the so- society devolves for that reason. And let me also mention one of the books that we're going to publish next year. I mentioned Frances Stevens. She has this novella called "The Heads of Cerberus." in which three characters travel from the present time into um, the far future Philadelphia, um, the city here in the US, which has become a kind of fascist city state. And I bring that up because we recently had some poll results from Pennsylvania about the next presidential contest that make me quite worried about where uh, that state is headed.
0: No, thank you for taking us through those examples. Um, Again, the authors might be unfamiliar to listeners, but the ideas very much show the relevance of um, excavating, of reissuing these books. I'd love to pick up, if you don't mind, as a follow-up on something you mentioned, though, in that answer, um, which is that kind of looking at what predictions did or did not come through is not necessarily what you're looking for in deciding which books to go into the series. What are you looking for when making that decision?
1: Uh, yes, I am looking for a really good writing act because I think part of what I'm pushing against here is uh, the idea that been, that was propagated by Golden Age science fiction writers and editors at the time. They're the ones who named it the Golden Age, by the way. We didn't come up with that later and say those guys were so great. They called themselves the Golden Age and in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And they were specifically reacting against um, the early 30s and the 1920s in science fiction which they felt was quite naive and clumsy and primitive. In some ways, you know, some of that pulp science fiction from that era wasn't so great. Uh, So one of the things I was pushing against was the idea that there's nothing good to read um, from this entire 35-year period. I really wanted to have these terrific writers. Um, I'm also looking, as I mentioned earlier, I want diversity of themes. I want to show where, you know, some of these tropes and themes come from originally. I want to cover a lot of them. And I want to show that it was quite a diverse um, set of writers. There was, there was actually more women writing um, science fiction for science fiction magazines in the twenties than there were in the thirties, which is astonishing to me, but it's really because um, editors like John W. Campbell who's credited with the, creating the golden age of science fiction being one of the greatest science fiction editors of all time um, really was uh, misogynistic and racist. And he wanted to kind of, um, put guardrails around what science fiction could be. And um, he wanted to get rid of, you know, elements that basically weren't hard science fiction and weren't very rational and logical or whatever he was looking for. And he wanted to get rid of all kinds of, you know, occult influences and romance influences and things that he considered outre and other, and which were coded as feminine often. So there was the number of women who write for science fiction magazines dropped precipitously during that period. So that's part of what we're trying to do here is, is um, you know correct the story of the history of this genre.
0: No, that that's very important, and really, I think an important reminder of kind of why you know why I'm talking to you as series editor, right? What is the role of being an editor for something like this, and what kind of influence can that have? Um, given that, as you've sort of mentioned throughout, these books are coming out um, over time, right? Some this year, some next year, some last year. Have you gotten feedback from readers? Are, are readers kind of as surprised uh, about sort of rediscovering these? Do you, are there things you think might be particularly surprising? Have you heard from anyone about it?
1: Yeah, so we have heard from reviewers, anyway, those kinds of readers. Um, and we know that everyone who has reviewed the first Voices from the Radium Age collection, the, the story collection that I edited last year, Everyone remarks on E.M. Forster's story, The Machine Stops from 1909, which depicts a utopian society where uh, your every physiological need may be met, a sort of H.G. Wellesian kind of utopia that Forster's making fun of, but where when social life has been reduced to like YouTube and TED Talks, people just are attached to their screens and they don't leave home anymore. Very prescient and interesting people. And also, Forster's such an incredible writer. So um, that's when they that got people talking a lot. Um, I think people are interested in um, William Hope Hodgson's The Nightland, which is a very, very strange book. Um, the host of a podcast called Weird Studies said of it um, when we reissued it, he said, I'm going to get a quote slightly wrong, but he said, it's a book I know I'll read again and revisit in reveries for the rest of my life. Uh, it's really one of the first um, amazing early uh, examples of what's called weird science fiction sometimes, or weird fiction Uh, China Miéville would be a contemporary practitioner of that kind of writing. Uh, H.G. I'm sorry, H.P. Lovecraft was a you know admirer of Hodgson and got some of his themes and style from Hodgson. So there's some of these kinds of discoveries are are quite exciting for people, and also just writers like Mae Sinclair, who is not known for anything anymore. She was an important early modernist writer and critic. T.S. Eliot was a fan of hers. Um, Borges was a fan. Uh, we don't know her anymore as as anything, much less as a science fiction author. She wrote a, an amazing um, story called "The Finding of the Absolute" that I reissued in the second Voices from the Radium Age series. So, I think people have been surprised and delighted by you know some of these discoveries.
0: Brilliant! Thank you for taking us through that. It's always fascinating to kind of hear how people react to things like this. Um, if I might ask the obvious but cheeky question. Do you have any favorites? And if so, which are they and
1: why? I like this question coming from you because I often hear this question from um, radio hosts who haven't, haven't read any of the books. <laughs> and, but you, I love getting it from because I know you have read the books. And we've t- and, Well, um,
0: I wish I had read yeah. all of them because listening yeah, yeah. to this, I'm like, oh, I'm still intrigued. But I admit, <laughs> dear listeners, I've only read five.
1: Still, that's incredible. So yes, free from you, I, I love getting this question. So, um, in the More Voices collection, which came out this August, um, there was a, uh, a story called "The Republican, The Republic of the Southern Cross," by a Russian writer named Valerie. I, I might be mispronouncing his name, but Bryusov, who was a very important symbolist poet. And what I love about the story—it's about the stories about. Uh, a, a utopian workers' society um, domed in south at the South Pole, where because it's because the elements are so harsh outside, everything has to be very carefully regulated, and people's lives have become very regulated. And then this kind of mania of doing things the wrong way breaks out, which eventually destroys the society. And it's amazing because he's writing this before the Russian Revolution, before all these dystopian novels that came after the Russian Revolution. Uh, and what I love about it is that it really helps us understand that science fiction was a hybrid genre from the beginning. And it's just borrowing elements from everywhere. In this case, including from symbolist poetry, the symbolists were very interested. They're very, they were kind of the, you know, the decadent movement. They were interested in the end of things and how tiresome everything was. And, you know, they weren't excited about modernity and, um, they kind of longed for, uh, you know, barbarians to, to, sack civilization, things like this. And, um, that's, that's, a, that's a science fiction trope these days, and it's introduced in a strange way by, by someone like Briusov. Let me just mention one other one, which is, um, I mentioned May Sinclair a moment ago and her story, The Finding of the Absolute. So there's this amazing um, phenomenon happening in the early 20th century where some mathematicians and scientists have become interested in the fourth dimension and things called tesseracts, uh, hypercubes. And there were there were um, mathematician uh, mathematicians who really wanted people to think um, meditate on these diagrams of these four dimensional cubes because they felt that it would be good for you uh, good for us morally um, to have a wider perspective literally widen our perspectives and there's a famous novel Flatland from the 19th century Edwin A Abbott about how a three dimensional shape comes into a two dimensional society and they can't. They perceive it as something monstrous and strange. They can't really get their arms around it. But the people who do, the, the two-dimensional uh, people who do kind of attempt to grapple with it, find their perspectives altered for the better. And so these four-dimensional thinkers wanted three, us three-dimensional human beings to have that kind of same kind of experience. Long-winded way of saying that, Mason Clare, uh, among some other writers in this era, wrote very entertainingly about what might happen if your mind was indeed um, altered and your, perspective was changed by meditating on the fourth dimension.
0: Very, I I mean, I'm impressed really that you could answer my question with just two.
1: (laughs) It's a very (laughs) hard question.
0: No, fair enough. Um, well, we'll stick with those two for now. Um, before I ask you kind of what else you might be working on, is there anything else you'd like us to know about the series? Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to say about the covers or anything else about the series?
1: Well, thank you. That was a that was a lovely hint. Yes. Yeah. So, um, part of my um, the agreement I made when we came when I came into MIT Press was that I really wanted to work with a cartoonist named Seth, a Canadian cartoonist who draws and he's very inspired and influenced by a sort of nineteen twenties nineteen thirties cartooning um, and. Uh, uh, I, 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 I'm, I was frustrated by how often when you see books reissued from the 1920s or thirties or forties, they're done in a very cheesily retro way, a very pulp science fiction way, a kind of wacky way, which I find diminishes um, what, what, what's in, contained within the covers. So I wanted uh, artwork that would be, um, would reflect, you know, the era, but I wanted it to feel very contemporary and moody and interesting and cool and, artistic. And this uh, cartoonist Seth, who I've worked with on other projects in the past, is just really perfect. But I wasn't sure if we could get him, and I wasn't sure if MIT Press would let me use him, if they might want to use their in-house illustrators. But it all worked out. So Seth is the illustrator for the series, and I think um, honestly, as, you know, for all the work that I put into the series, it wouldn't be nearly as successful in getting as much attention as it is if it wasn't for his extraordinary covers. So thank you for asking me about that.
0: Well, I definitely would point the listeners to, um, if we haven't already enticed you to go look up these books while you're listening, um, do it now just to look at the covers, if nothing else, um, because I certainly cannot describe them in any way that gives them, does them justice, um, but they do just, they're cool looking. So I'm not surprised that there was a whole bunch of intent and an artist behind it um, in a way that you don't necessarily see for books from any publisher, um, but often not in the academic world, especially. Um, so thank that's, you for telling true.
1: us that. Yeah, I should say that the MIT Press. One of the reasons I was excited to hear from them was because I, they actually have really nice book design. They're well known in the academic world for being a, a cut above most most university press publishers. Uh, so I was excited, and I think that's part of the reason why they were willing to work with an outside illustrator uh, who they didn't know because they just they do take uh, covers quite seriously compared compared to their peers. I would say.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I do want to ask, and the answer might be I don't know, Miranda, sleep, uh, which is fair enough. But is there anything else you're working on besides this series that you'd like to preview or highlight to the audience?
1: Oh, in addition to the series, well, I mean, um, I, I wear a lot of hats. I'm actually a commercial semiotician for a living. I'm teaching a class at the Rhode Island School of Design at the moment. I publish my website, Hilo Brow, and another website called Semiovox. Um, I've published, um, books on language, um, called the Idler's Glossary, the, the Wage Slaves Glossary, and the Adventures Glossary. I've published books for children, uh, and families about activities called the Unboard series. So I've done, <laughs> I do a lot of things besides the science fiction, um, series, but let me just mention, uh, forthcoming what I'm excited about in, in addition to what I've already talked about, which is it for the series, which is, um, that we got Ted Chiang, the amazing science fiction author who's you know, who wrote the story that became the movie Arrival, um, to do an introduction for our reissuing, a reissued version of J.D. Bears for the Hamptonshire Wonder, which is one of the first important science fiction novels about intelligence. And S.L. Huang, another science fiction author who I like a lot, she wrote the Cass Russell novels. She's a, she herself is a mathematician. In addition to being a science fiction author, she's also a stunt woman, So she's an amazing person, and her novels are really cool. And she's going to introduce John Taine's Greatest Adventure. So... What's fun and exciting is that now that the series out there in the world and people are aware of it and it's getting some publicity, we're able to start kind of um, going after um, bigger names and interesting science fiction authors who I don't have any connection to, but we're willing to work on the series because they can tell that it's an established thing and that we're, and that we're doing this in a very serious way.
0: Wow. Okay, that's very cool. Um, Lots to look forward then with the series. Of course, if you need a reminder, uh, it is titled The Radium Age Series, and it's published by MIT Press. Josh, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Miranda.